0: Hello! And welcome to episode 11 of Hidden Noise. I'm Abby Sandler. And I'm Rebecca Siegel. And don't worry, we're not sending you to any more art fairs. Yeah, today we're making things pretty easy for you. We're sending you right to Midtown. To MoMA for this week's Go See, Tarsila de
1: Emerald Inventing Modern Art in Brazil.
0: And after we tell you how incredible this exhibition is, our editor, Jason Ferrago will be joined by artist Sean Landers. But first, Tarsila. We understand that some of you may not know who we're talking about, so Rebecca's going to quickly brief few before we dive into the show.
1: Yes, I am the background queen. So Tarsila de Amaral was born in 1886 in the rural town of Capivari, and my apologies if I have just butchered that Portuguese. The town is on the outskirts of Sao Paulo, and she grew up among the Brazilian plantation-owning bourgeoisie. Tarsila spent time traveling between Paris and Brazil. She attended a Parisian art school and then returned to Sao Paulo in the mid-1920s. It wasn't long before she started drawing the attention of all kinds of artists, from French Cubist masters to Brazilian modernist poets, such as Oswald de Andrade, who took a particular liking to her.
0: And after Tersilla spent some time apprenticing with Cubists like Fernand Leger, she traveled quite a bit with Oswald to Paris, where she had her first solo exhibition, and then to the Middle East. And some of the st- sketches and paintings you will see in the show were made during these trips.
1: When the two of them married in 1926 and moved back to Sao Paulo, they spent most of their time traveling between the city and the countryside. It's in this period that Tarsila's work developed a dreamlike whimsicality. It's heavy with surrealist influence, and you can see it in a number of works. It's not subtle.
0: However, the exhibition rests heavily on one particular work, Abaporu, which literally translates to Man Who Eats Human Flesh. It depicts a nude woman with inflated limbs sitting beside a cactus with the sun between them, which literally just looks like a slice of pineapple. This painting, which was originally made as a birthday present for Oswald, her then-husband, became an emblem of a new artistic movement in Brazil. The idea was artistic cannibalism, the consumption of outside foreign influences. And just to be clear, when you're looking at these works, it's not that she was becoming
1: part of the modernist dialogue. She was the modernist dialogue. It is her vocabulary created practically single-handedly.
0: An interesting thing happens to her work, however, in the 30s, as Brazil falls into a dictatorship. Tarsila gravitates away from the surrealist, whimsical depictions of nature and Brazilian landscapes and becomes much more socially driven. Naturally, she becomes a Marxist, like
1: almost every artist in the 30s.
0: <laughs> You'll see this in a work called Operarios, or Workers, from 1933. When you
1: look at the style and composition of this work in relation to the 80 works you'll have seen before this, Trust me, you're going to notice a distinct difference, and it's in tandem with the sociopolitical history of Brazil.
0: I also want to draw your attention to a couple other things. When you're walking around through the show looking at the paintings, stop and look at the various drawings that are also on display. (laughs) Of course this was your favorite part. How could it not be? Did you see those teeny tiny little palm trees? I am telling you, these drawings really make a case for the power of a line. I wish I could roll my eyes at you, but it's relatively true. That woman can
1: use a line on a 4 by 6 piece of paper, and it's very special.
0: I'm telling you guys, palm trees, just don't forget to take note. And with the paintings,
1: of course, make sure that you pay attention to color. Those deep greens and burnt oranges, they deserve some recognition.
0: Any particular highlights on your end? Um, I would say to pay
1: attention to the titles and their translations or lack thereof. I'm not going to deep dive into that because I'm not informed enough to talk about language and race relations in Brazil. But I am going to deep dive about my favorite thing about this show, which is that the show is happening In the first place, this is the first major U.S. exhibition of Tarsila's work, the defining artist of 20th century Brazilian modernist art. And that entire school is a rich wealth of material, which was by and large neglected by Euro and American centric narratives from our educations to our institutions. In the last five years, those narratives have been reworked and expanded to account for the Southern Hemisphere, Asia, and the Middle East, and for Brazilian art specifically in New York alone, MoMA has shown Ligia Clark, the Met Breuer has exhibited Ligia Pape, and the Whitney has shown Elio Otisica. This is part of a major shift that I hope all of our listeners are keeping in the back of their minds as they visit this city's shows.
0: But we now want to draw your attention to another show going on right now, a little further uptown at Petzel Gallery. Yes, Sean Landers, a Yale
1: alum whose work was just on view at those art fairs we sent you to. His irony and wit is pretty unparalleled.
0: And since we were lucky enough to get Landers in the studio to speak to our editor, we will now turn the mic over to them. Jason Frago with Sean Landers.
2: Sean Landers, thanks so much for joining us. You are a painter, though also someone who works in sculpture, occasionally performance, a writer as well. And if you encountered your paintings sort of all at once in the form of a retrospective or in the form of a Google image search, you might see discrepancies in style that might be difficult to initially explain. Paintings that are covered in text versus figurative paintings, often with a surrealist bent. Maybe I could just ask you about historical surrealism first, because surrealism certainly has had a bad rap sometimes in the art history of the last 30 or 40 years. It's seen as, as, not contributing to the somewhat plodding official story of art history in the uh, from the 1920s and 30s on to the alleged, you know, triumph of American painting that you might see when you go to MoMA and you look at the official story. And I wonder, when you were younger, was Surrealism, or when you were starting out as an artist, was Surrealism, people like Magritte, were they
3: quite influential to you or were they people you discovered later? later. In fact, I don't think I really well appreciated Magritte until much later. And it wasn't until I saw his Vash period. So You um, should just explain a little bit. These Vash period ones are not the ones that are
2: similar to the most famous ones of, say, the, ma- the man with the bowler hat and the apple in front of him, or the
3: period of clouds. Yeah, they're very different. In fact, they were done basically in a one-year period, which spanned, I think, part of 47 and part of 48 and it was it was basically a fuck you show to Andre Breton and the Paris art scene because he had been the world's preeminent surrealist and he was ignored by the central art city and the central you know the opinion makers in that city so he he was finally invited there and he wanted to just give them a a kind of a fuck you show and it was a brilliant show he was unshackled from his sort of tight renderings and things like that and he just uh, you know, sort of held the back of the brush rather than choked up on it and uh, swashbuckled a little bit and, and uh, they were really, he was trying to make bad paintings and in so doing he, I think he made his best paintings.
2: We've seen in the art world over the last couple of years these sort of retrospective 90s shows. There was one at the New Museum two or three years ago, there was another um, in New Jersey and now the 1990s, the early 1990s in particular, is being mythologized in a lot of ways. Um, for people of a younger generation, the 90s often look like the last good moment. At this moment in your career, did you think that there was a kind of... Um, that there was an excitement, or is it is that all just so much uh, uh, rose-colored glasses looking back?
3: It's both. Um, what it felt like at the time was um, I just really needed to make that work. I was going through a personal thing that just... You know, whenever you're going through a really, you know, a strong personal thing, which I was at the time, it just sort of like everything else peels away and you get just like, I'm just going to make the thing I want to make and I don't give a shit. So I was doing that and that just sort of happened right at the same time where this art market crash occurred. And it was just also the same time where the sort of grunge thing started. Right. And so, um, and, and there was this, you know, sort of, loosely defined abject thing going on as well but um the influence of Mike Kelly and Paul McCarthy that generation I guess I don't I wouldn't say influence because um maybe but I I was there too right so (laughs) so I wasn't (laughs) looking at it that way so um I was just I don't know I was just I was really reacting to you know the first kind of art things i you know, the first kind of art I made when I was, you know, I come from a, a graduate school, I had a massive studio, I was making giant sculptures. I have a, now a small studio in the Lower East Side and I'm trying to make those giant sculptures small. And then I'm keeping an eye on what's going on in the East Village thinking like, how do I be a part of that dialogue? And I said, fuck it, I can't be a part of that dialogue. And then I just sort of got real with myself. And I always have wrote since, you know, since puberty, it was my, my go-to form. And um, whenever I was in stress, I would just sit and write, right. and I'd feel better. And then this was a moment of stress mm-hmm. for me. I just started writing. And
2: now, these old text paintings that um, uh, sort of come alongside and after the um, the works on the legal pad, we should describe them, that they, they are often um, autobiographical, but of a fictionalized character in some ways. And the degree to which they're fictionalized is, of course, unknowable to us the viewer there are disclosures that can be very direct and often discomforting but there also is quite a bit of humor again a sort of surrealist inheritance it seems to me um and you know how much of putting yourself on the line and putting your own insecurities your own doubts uh, on the line was was a goal of this work
3: well using the the self is a tool and it almost doesn't matter what i'm trying to do is what art does is trying to create a moment that's relatable to a viewer. When I use myself, it's my most available art material that I can use to put in this thing. And so I don't have a need to tell you or, or anyone anything about myself. In fact, if you, I'm quite private when you know me, but I understand that to make good work, I have to actually invest myself into the thing. And I do. And it's like a songwriter, like a, someone who writes poems or someone who writes novels, you need to put yourself in it. If you don't, nothing will remain. And this comes through not only in the paintings that are principally or exclusively
2: text, but also in the more recent work that you've been doing, often with a kind of surrealist vocabulary, but not surrealist in itself at all, in which uh, the figure of the clown appears or the use of animals in some of the more recent ones. Maybe we can talk a little bit about the first person character of imagery and not just of text. Um, in the more recent works, how have you begun to find a visual language that goes beyond language to uh, explore these sort of first person questions?
3: Yeah, after having mined myself self-conscious for imagery for you know, the last 20 something years, I have an image library now. So much so that I went down through all my surrealist paintings from the 90s and I wrote an ingredients list, you know, like three noses or, you know, whatever it is, antlers. And I put them all in little wood cards and I put them into a brass raffle drum. And uh, there's there 300 ingredients. And I roll the raffle drum and I pick out seven at random. Wait, a real raffle drum? Like, yeah.
2: like, like at a bingo parlor or something? Yeah, it's, right? a, yeah. it's
3: sort of a, you know, what, what artists do is they take their past experiences and they reamalgamate them and make a new thing. And every time you make a new thing, you have a new thing to put in the raffle drum. So the raffle drum is the head. So I'm trying to make a head that lasts way beyond me. So the potential for more artworks for me will outlast me forever, because I think the unique combinations of these 300 cards are about a trillion more than paintings could be made. So this thing exists and I love its potentiality. I love, it's like this, you know, I'd love to do a show someday where I invited a whole bunch of different artists to take seven and try to make something of it. So
2: from your own subconscious, but but they can be processed or they can be um, added together in ways that you couldn't possibly foresee.
3: Yeah, but a couple of things here. As soon as I pick seven, I don't like the seven. (laughs) (laughs) So 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 if that's a small brass raffle drum, my head, the bigger brass raffle drum (laughs) intervenes and I redo it. But the other thing I've realized when I start to look at these things, it's not just my unconscious, it's collective unconscious. A lot of the things that are in there I think are quite you know it's the it's not just an American uh, language either I think it's it's um, it, it goes beyond and uh, you know th- there's some that seem Disney-esque or, or you know or Hanna-Barbera-esque or something like that which are more focused American but there's a lot that go beyond and um, so it's I like to think of it as it is a collective unconscious anyway you know it's that's where I think that the um, the surrealism really connects back to the writing, because what I'm trying to do with the writing is create something where you, a viewer, know yourself in what I make. And the same with the
2: surrealist. One of the themes that comes up a lot in, in the paintings is the the image of a sailor or, or of an explorer. Um, and the sailor um, who uh, can sometimes have a kind of, you know, shiver me timbers, sort of uh, uh, long beard pipes, but can also be in a more mocking way, often with a clown nose. Um, this seems to me, I wouldn't want to call these self-portraits at all, but they do seem to have some kind of echo of the, um, uh, of the other work with the writing, that there's a destination unknown. uh, The quest uh, is one that you have to undertake and yet there's
3: something a little bit silly, possibly even doomed about this exploring enterprise. Is that right? It's perfectly right, yeah. um, I am at once honoring the life to what it is to go through life as an artist and also making fun of it. A little background The clown is a symbol and the chimpanzee is a symbol. Early on in my writing when I was trying to figure out how to get images in, I noticed that my extemporaneous writing was cyclical. It was self-aggrandizing then self-effacing over and over and over again. I'm the best, I'm the worst, I'm the best, I'm the worst. Over and over and over again. That's when you read it like, what's this guy saying? He's saying he believes in himself and he thinks he might be good and then he doesn't believe in himself and he thinks he sucks and you should shut up. So I was like, God, I'm just saying that over and over again. So rather than say it over and over again, I, started, I gave the self-effacing, the clown, and the self-aggrandizing, the chimp. And they become symbols that run right through my artwork till, till today. was so there we, actually
2: a chimp that was in your studio? Yeah, I hired
3: there? a chimp to come portray me in my studio and made a <laughs> video of it, yeah. And so, you know, <laughs> I've painted enough clowns, you know. But anyway, so that the, I think the show that you're referring to is 2011 at Petzl and there I have this clown and from young boy to very old man with lots of symbolism of beginning and end in every painting but he's on a boat and that's the journey through life and what is is a journey of life through of the stream of consciousness which has been the backbone of what everything that I do and um so was doing that but it was it was also it was like I try to do them just a little bit bigger than life size to heroicize the, the the fool so it is at once it is that one thing of saying like you know I admire this journey through life as an artist that I'm doing but I also am you know I see the folly in it I see how silly it is to be an artist and you know I both I wouldn't say love and hate it but I'm both proud and sort of ashamed and
2: I guess one of the things I admire about your work and I could maybe wrap up by asking you this is the sincerity of both the ambition and the sincerity of the embarrassment and I suppose that one thing I see a lot in um, in the art of younger figures is a certain reticence, both about ambition and about embarrassment. And I guess what I might want to ask you is this question about sincerity. You were talking about paintings that have endured for three, four, five hundred years. Do you believe that paintings today can endure for three, four, five hundred years? And should that be the ambition of every artist? Maybe I could ask you a little bit about the 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 afterlife of this work and about what an artist today can expect in a in a world where not only the encounter with paintings today has changed but the historical
3: view on them has changed as well. It's it's unknowable but when you just think of the structure I don't know whether my work will survive when you think of the structure what preserved these paintings it was oftentimes the church right so uh then you know when you get beyond religious painting then you go straight up to you know when you think of the 1700s in the United States, it's you know you think of Copley or something like that. Is poli- he was doing the rich people of the time, and then you know I guess starting in the 18th century, it's mm-hmm. where the wealth was, and then power of any variety, power of re- an ecclesiastical phenomenon, power of an
2: economic phenomenon, or now cultural power. You might find it a museum, yeah. Any hookup you there. need,
3: a, you need something to preserve these things because they don't just last out on the street, so they need to be in a cool, dry closet somewhere so that they don't... So, what's I don't know what kind of structure there will be to preserve everything that's being made now. The volume of art work being made now, is, I would imagine, is much greater than at any point in history. So, what gets selected from this? And there's also, you know, you know what do they say about uh, history? is written by the winners. So, if you don't win your time, how are you going to win history? So... You know there's all that in there which is this the horrible part of it which i hate to think about because i'm a i'm not that kind of a person who would ever win my time so uh, I don't know, uh, you mm-hmm. know, I, it's unknown. I think about it a lot though, as uh, you know, there's a lot more sand on the bottom half of the hourglass than there is on top. So now I start to think about it. When I was younger, I didn't think about it much.
2: Maybe then the real question is, is not so much about what the actual structures of survival, but the personal desire, ambition as, I wouldn't say this, but if you were willing to say it, the hourglass is more half empty than half full, Is there, at this point in your career, a different engagement with the mode of address, who these are are addressed to, than there was before? Something less immediate and something more enduring?
3: Yeah, I'm full-on talking to the future. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
2: so We can stop right there. Sean (laughs) Landers, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you again to Sean Landers for joining Jason in the studio today. And we hope you all can make it up to MoMA for the Tarsila show, and then further uptown to Petzl. I'm Rebecca Siegel. And I'm Abby Sandler. And this is Hidden Noise.